This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel around Israel. To go around Israel was one of the great joys of my life, and one of the places that we went was a region called Megiddo. Well, in this area of Israel, like many other areas in Israel, there is a lot of archaeological ruins and artifacts in different places. You travel throughout Israel, you see old things, you see old buildings that have fallen down, you see walls that have crumbled, and you find in various areas things that are antiquated. Now, when we went to Megiddo, there was something that I found, and to me it was quite the find. I was walking around, and on two occasions on the hillsides there, I found something that looked like a broken piece of a pot or an ancient ceramic or something. Now I lifted it up, and I showed our guide. I said, look what I have here. And here I am thinking I'm Indiana Jones, and I've got this great artifact. And he says, well, he says, that's not really that impressive. This is what's called a potsherd. It's part of a broken pot or clay vessel. Now, it might be old. It might even be centuries old, and yet... There are a lot of these things around, and that's because over the centuries, one of the primary means or ways by which the Israelites would hold or house anything, from water to scrolls, they would put it inside a clay vase or pot or jar. And over the years, these clay pots and jars and the like would break. They were never meant to last throughout all time. They would break because they were fragile. And as they broke, their pieces would fall to the ground and no one cared to collect them up. And so you can find potsherds in various places of Israel. Now, upon thinking about this, I was reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about potsherds, so to speak. He talks about clay jars, jars of clay. Specifically, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have what we've got in jars of clay. We have this treasure, that which God has given us, the faith that is sown into our hearts and minds of spirit. It's housed in the equivalent of a clay jar, something fragile something that will not last. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. A jar of clay is a temporary holding space. It's functional, it's utilitarian, but it is not permanent. And what Paul was doing, he was making the analogy, he's saying this faith that we have, it is contained within a body that is not as strong as the faith itself. And in time, the body will pass, the body will die. Our treasure, our hope, our faith is within clay jars. Now, that's relevant to today's text because in today's text in Philippians, Paul is thinking about death. He's thinking about what is to come. He knew that his treasure, his faith, his hope was housed within a clay jar that would one day break. And so Paul knew that if that was true, if his faith and hope and treasure was housed in the equivalent of a clay jar, that in God's time it would need to be taken and transferred into something else. This morning, like Paul, perhaps some of us have mortality in view. This morning, like Paul in Philippians chapter 1, perhaps some of us can see the end from the beginning. And perhaps some of us, as we think about that outcome, as we think about death, perhaps it startles us or scares us or we're afraid of it. Well, in today's text, we're going to see that Paul was not afraid. Dying is no fun, but death itself didn't concern Paul because he knew how things would turn out. Paul knew how his story would end. Paul knew that death, it had been defeated, it had been vanquished. If this morning, if you're afraid of death, it's much like if you picture David after he slew Goliath. 
He kills him with the stones. He chops off his head. Goliath's body is dead. It's lifeless. It's headless in front of him. Do you expect David at that moment would be afraid of Goliath laying there headless, dead, and lifeless? Well, no. He wouldn't be afraid because Goliath had been defeated. The same is true with death. It has been defeated. Paul knew that. You and I should know that. And we should say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die, it's gain. There's an upside to it that you have not considered. Let's consider that upside now as we return to today's passage. Let's look at verses 19 and 20 and then work our way through, through the balance. Verse 19. For I know that this, meaning his circumstances, his situation, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also with Christ. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether through my life or death. All right. As we said earlier, last week we introduced the book of Philippians, and there's this interesting thing about Philippians. Again, it's written by a man in harsh, terrible circumstances. He's in house arrest, waiting trial by Caesar, and yet he's very passionate and excited and even joyful as he writes. His circumstance, his circumstance did not dictate his joy. So his situation was bad, but his hope was great. Now, part of the reason that he was so hopeful, if you remember, he was writing to the Philippians in order to thank them. Paul was in a Roman prison. Paul could have been out of sight, out of mind, but the Philippians remembered Paul. They remembered Paul, and they remembered that he would need provision while he was under house arrest. He would need supplies and finances to be given, taken to him. Now, why is that? When we think about jail or imprisonment, we think about it in the Western context that we know it. There are jails, and you go to jail, and you wear the orange jumpsuit, and then you're in a small confined space, and you're let out for periods of time. And yet, while you're there, you're taken care of. There's three meals a day. There's room and shelter and the rest. That's how we understand imprisonment. As terrible as that is, it still, however, is worlds better than how the Romans thought about imprisonment. See, in Rome, they didn't have this mentality that if you were guilty of a crime awaiting trial, they didn't have this mentality that the state should even take care of those who were imprisoned. So what would happen is if you were under house arrest, you had to pay for your own room, shelter, and board. You had to take care of yourself even though you couldn't go anywhere. You still had to pay. And if you didn't pay up for your shelter, room, board, your rent, so to speak, if you didn't do that, then here's what prison looked like in Rome. They would take you outside, they'd shackle you to a stake in the ground, and if you made it, you made it, and if you didn't, you didn't. But the state was not going to provide for your needs. So that's what Paul, that's the circumstances he was in. So what he needed was for other people, particularly for the churches, to step up and to provide for him in the midst of the situation. He needed folks to look out for his best interest and help him to have room, shelter, and board that he would need in order to live. Well, the Philippians had done that. A lot of churches didn't. A lot of churches, Paul was out of sight, out of mind. But the church in Philippi, they remembered Paul. And so they sent a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus brought supplies. He brought finances. And he brought words of hope and encouragement. And he gave that to Paul. And it fed Paul's body and it fed Paul's spirit to have this provision. That's why he was so joyful when he wrote them. 
When he writes the Philippians, he's writing to a mature church that knew what it was like to take care of their missionaries, so to speak, that knew what it was like to take care of church planners and those on the front lines of ministry. He was writing to them to thank them because they had done the right thing and taken care of him. So he was greatly encouraged by the provision, even though his situation really hadn't changed. He was still awaiting trial in Rome by Nero. So even though his situation was still bad, he was the most hopeful guy in Rome. And we see that hope in verses 19 through 20 when he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what kind of deliverance is Paul talking about here? Well, on the one hand, Paul knew that God was certainly capable of setting him free. Because God had done it before. Paul knew that if God decided, decreed, determined to free Paul, that it could happen like that. In fact, Paul had once been in a jail in Philippi, and that's exactly what happened. The ground shook, the bars, the cages, the doors opened wide, and those who were inside were unable to head out. Paul knew what it was like for God to act and to free prisoners, and he thought that that was certainly possible. However, it's very conceivable that he had a different type of deliverance in mind. Because at the very end of this same sentence that he's talking about deliverance, he says, my greatest desire is that Christ would be magnified whether it's through my life or through my death. Even if I don't take another step outside of the situation I'm in now, that's all right. That does not mean I'm beyond deliverance. Now what does that mean? See, Paul, when he's thinking about deliverance, he knew that it could come through two means. Number one, it could be the jailer's keys, so to speak. Number one, it could be freedom, the ability to be let go from his house arrest. That could be one option. The second option was this. Deliverance could come through Nero's sword. Paul could die, and yet he didn't see that as the horrific thing that we might. He said, you know what? To live is Christ. If I'm set free to go back to Philippi and minister in that context, great. But to live is Christ, to die it's gain. In fact, that's better. Let's look at the verses that follow, verses 21 through 26, to see what he's talking about. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. And yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell because I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I mean, confident in this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. To live is Christ, to die is gain. What does that mean? Let's start with the first part of the equation, to live is Christ. You know, when we lived in Colorado, there was a guy I knew who was a mountain climber, and he made this statement once. He said this. He said, I live to climb, and I climb to live. Now, you might have heard other similar phrases. People say that sort of thing about golf or scuba or whatever, whatever their passion is. I live to climb. I climb to live. They'll say that sort of thing. And what they're saying, or what they mean when they say it, is that I identify with this passion, this hobby, this pursuit so much that I see my life, my identity, who I am through this thing, whatever it might be. Well, Paul had a similar mentality, only you could substitute mountain climbing or golf or needlepoint or whatever else, you could substitute Christ because he saw his purpose, his identity, his reason for getting up in the morning as glorifying the one who had made him. 
He found that to be the most natural thing in the world. To live is Christ. This is what I was made to do. I was made to glorify the one who made me. I was created to glorify my creator. To live is Christ. And if I'm granted life, if I'm granted another hour, another day, another week, another year, I will, I will spread the word of this Savior. I will point people to Jesus. And whether that happens here in a Roman prison, so to speak, whether it happens here and it's just me ministering to the palace guard, that's great. Whether it's me going to Philippi and being with the people I love again, that's also great. And if I should die, you know what? That's even better. That's even better because not only do I love to serve my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but I long to be with Him. I long to get to know Him better. I long to dwell where He dwells. A key important consideration of Paul's faith was that he was looking beyond the veil. You and I get so stuck on the here and now. We get so stuck on the horizontal. We seldom think vertically, except as an insurance policy. We think of the future and say, yeah, when I die some way, way down the road, yep, I hope I go there and I'll read my Bible and I'll say my prayers and I'll take my vitamins and hopefully God will love me and save me. Oftentimes that's our approach to God. We think about the horizontal and occasionally we think about the vertical, mostly through the lens of mortality. Well, Paul saw Christ in everything. In his daily activities and also in his future hope. And you say, to live is Christ in the here and now, but to die is gain because then I get to be with him. And not only will I be with him, but I'll be with him for all eternity. And not only will I be with him for all eternity, I'll be with the loved ones and the saints who have died in Christ over all these centuries. And when we're there, there'll be no more hurt, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. Every tear will be wiped away. Paul saw that and he wanted that. Do you? Is that something that you really are looking forward to, that you desire? Whatever the case, Paul and his situation, whether Caesar came calling with the sword or whether the jailer came calling with the keys, either way, to Paul, this was a win-win. My deliverance is coming. Either way, no matter what God does, no matter what his decree is, I will be delivered into something better than where I'm at right now. You know, when we think about the words to die is gain, and for some of us, it causes us to stumble mentally because we just don't see that. A lot of times we can't even see the first part of the equation, to live is Christ. That's like some other super spiritual guy somewhere far away up on a mountain. Maybe he has you know, every thought devoted to Christ. For some of us, we have trouble with the words to live is Christ. But for others, the problem is to die is gain. Why? We don't want to die. We don't want to. We've grown up thinking in our culture that death is far scarier than it is. If you're prone to worry about death, I wonder if there was an eyewitness who had seen the other side, who had seen God's golden shores, and he came to you and he explained something Maybe just in a word, but he explains something about what it's like, what he saw there, what the experience was. Would that give you some hope if there's an eyewitness to this, someone who could testify to you? Well, here's the thing. Scripture is filled with eyewitnesses. At least there's several key ones, and one of them was Paul. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 12? Apostle Paul, he was talking about this time, this time in which God gave him, Paul, a vision, a vision of heaven. Specifically says, God took me up to the third heaven. 
Now, the third heaven we've talked about before, if you were to look out these windows and you look up at the clouds, to the Jew, that was the first heaven, the heaven where the birds fly and the clouds are. That's heaven number one. The second heaven, that's where the stars are. Above the clouds, you see the stars. That's the second heaven. The third heaven, that's where God is. That's where no eye can see. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he knew a man, and he's referring to himself, who had had a vision of this heaven, of God's holy kingdom. Paul had a vision of that which you and I you know, would long to see and someday will see. He had a vision, and when he came back, here's the fascinating thing. You know all the books that are written at the Christian bookstores that talk about little kids, they saw heaven, and they come back and tell you what it's all like? The apostle Paul, he came back and he says, look, I got one word paradise. What was seen and what was heard there, inexpressible. There aren't words in the human language to convey the wonders that are there. Inexpressible. He didn't have the ability and he didn't have the authority to even explain what he saw, but he gave us the word paradise. Now John, John the Apostle, John was given a greater vision, and he was permitted to describe it in various ways. Well, amongst his descriptions in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John talked about the undiscovered country. He talked about it in this way. He says, I saw a new heaven, the new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, it's with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. You and I, who live out our days in a hurting, fallen world, we could use something new. We could use an encounter and an experience in a setting where there aren't tears, where there isn't cancer, where there isn't all the things that pepper and dot our landscape. We could use someplace new. We could use someplace better. That's what's on the other side. Sometimes when we think about death, we think of it as this ending, this end point. There's some finality with it, this brick wall that we hit. Sometimes, even Christians, sometimes we can think about that. That's not the message of Scripture. Scripture says... Scripture says death, it's not a brick wall that you hit. If anything, it's like a screen door through which even now you can sense what's on the other side. Through which even now you can perceive something about the wonders of that which awaits. And that's in part why Paul said that he desired to depart to be with Christ. That's in part why Paul was excited about the future even if it involved the sword of Nero. Because he knew what awaited He knew what awaited and he believed it. And it gave him hope. Death was nothing. Now let me make something clear. Dying is no fun. Dying is miserable. I've been a chaplain in hospitals. Dying, yeah, that's not a lot of fun. But death itself, man alive, that's nothing to fear. Take it from Paul. Take it from John. Take it from Christ. This is nothing to fear. So Paul's explaining that. He's explaining his own outlook to die as gain, and he's explaining it to people in Philippi that were kind of anxious and nervous about these things. Whatever the case is, Paul anticipated that his departure had not yet come. 
And as long as God gave him breath in his lungs, whether it was another hour, day, week, year, he would use that time to edify and encourage people in Philippi and elsewhere. Because he says in verse 24, that for me to remain in the flesh, that's more needful for you. I long to be there, but I'm all right being here because I know that you, the church I love and care for, need the grace and words of encouragement that I have to offer. All right, what kind of encouragement was this? Let's look at verse 27 and 28. Verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. If you were to summarize these verses, what is Paul telling the church in Philippi? And you had to summarize it in now three, four words. You might come up with this. You'd say, number one, Paul wants the church in Philippi to stay strong. Stay strong. They've been given a faith that is so much greater than the worldviews and belief systems and ideologies of everyone else around them. They stood on the rock, so they should stay strong. Number two, he said, stay united. There are a great many temptations, even in church settings. There are a great many temptations by which believers can be rent apart. And he says, don't let it happen. He says, we're striving together to one outcome, one finish line, with one hope and one Savior. Stay united, stay, stay strong. Now, let me mention something about the circumstance of Philippi. We've heard a little bit about Rome, but let's think about Philippi for a moment. So Paul is writing from Rome. He's writing to Philippi, but Philippi, you might have forgotten or not be aware, Philippi was actually a Roman colony. Philippi was in a region called Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony. The people in Philippi were under the boot, so to speak, of the Roman Empire. Now, not only were they under the boot of Rome, but Philippi was very pagan, as most of the cities in this region were. This was a pagan, heathen city living out its days under Roman oppression. Well, Paul, as a Roman citizen who happened to be in Rome at the time, he knew something about their circumstances. He knew that this is not easy. He knew that as far as a place to be and a circumstance to be in, that the believers in Philippi had it almost bad as he had it in Rome. There were dangers outside the door of the church, so to speak. There was those who were opposed to Christ and to Christians. And Paul knew that in time, maybe that very day, if not down the horizon, but in time, those dangers would be realized. And so he's trying to encourage them. He's look, stand strong. When you're tested, when persecution comes, stay strong. And furthermore, stay together. Stay united. You're going to need that strength and you're going to need that unity the day when difficulty comes. Let's talk about those difficult days in our final verses, verses 29 and 30. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. You know, in our country, it is a good and honorable thing to give your life for your community and for your nation. We recently celebrated Memorial Day, and it's this same principle. It is good and virtuous and righteous and even loving to give up your life for your neighbor. 
to give up your life for your community, to give up your life for your nation, your kingdom, so to speak. And that's not just true of our country. Throughout the ages, this has been true of almost every society. To give up your life for king and country, that's considered a noble thing. Well, if that's true here, if that's true of earthly nations and earthly kingdoms, how much more true is it of those who are willing to give up their lives, to sacrifice of themselves for their God? If it is good and noble and virtuous to die for your country, which it is, if that's good and righteous and virtuous, how much more so is it good and righteous and virtuous to give up, to sacrifice your life, your well-being, your things, your possessions, whatever it might be, on behalf of the kingdom of God and the king who reigns there. You know, once upon a time, the apostle Paul, once upon a time, Paul went by a different name. What was it? Saul. Now, when you think of Paul, you think of Paul the apostle, Paul the nice guy, Paul the virtuous, Paul the guy who wrote Philippians. You think of that. What do you think about when you think of Saul? When you think of Saul of Tarsus, what comes to mind? Well, if you remember what Scripture says about Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts, you remember that guy was a villain. You remember Saul of Tarsus was absolutely one of the greatest villains in all of Scripture up to that point, up to Acts chapter 9. Why? Because he was one of the greatest persecutors of the church. In Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's breathing out threats and murder, is what the passage says. This was a bad guy. And yet, even though he was a bad guy, out of God's love for Saul, who would become Paul, Christ knocked him off his horse, so to speak, Paul was changed. He was converted. He was regenerated. He was enabled and persuaded to turn to Christ. And thereafter, he lived his entire life sacrificially. Paul had once been an enemy of Christ, But out of Christ's love for him, he was now not only a friend, but he was a child of God. Paul had been adopted. He had been adopted as God's own son. He had been granted a white robe of righteousness. He had been given the privilege to serve as an apostle and as an ambassador of Christ. Again, if you were to add up some of the things that God did for Paul when he didn't deserve an ounce of it, he saved him, he changed him, adopted him into his royal family, and then made him an ambassador for his own kingdom. Let me tell you something. This is true not just of the Apostle Paul. Everything I just said there is true of you. If you were a believer, God has changed your heart, he has regenerated you, he has granted you a white robe of righteousness, he has adopted you into his royal family, and has made you an ambassador for his kingdom. The amount of blessings that we have, they're greater than the rain outside these doors. The amount of blessings that have been poured out upon us are more than we can think and more than we can count. And our response usually is thankfulness. We thank God because we know we couldn't do that on our own. God's given us things we don't deserve, and our typical response is to thank Him for doing it. But you know what? There's one gift. There's one gift that sometimes we try to give back. There's one blessing that He's given us, one thing He's granted to us that we usually don't want. And it's what we see in this last verse. If you take a look in verse 29, it says, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is not phrased in the phrase of a curse. It's phrased in the sense of a blessing. It has been granted, it's been given to you as a gift. Not only, not only the ability to believe in him, but the privilege of suffering for him. The privilege of sacrificing yourself for him who sacrificed himself for you. This is something, a gift, that oftentimes we don't want. Or that we think only someone else 
on the front lines of ministry in some foreign country should have to face. Suffering is something that we don't desire. And with that said, if it comes upon us, would we be ready? If your future was affected by your faith, if you knew that your temporal, material status here on earth, from now until the time God calls you home, would be affected greatly through your willingness to raise the flag of King Jesus, what would you do? Would you profess it readily, loudly, proudly? If your salary was to be cut in half because you were a Christian, is that a sacrifice you would be willing to make? If your freedoms were limited or denied because you were a Christian, just as Paul's freedoms were limited and denied because he was a Christian, is that a trade-off that you'd be willing to make? No one's saying that we're supposed to be masochists. Make no mistake. We're not supposed to be those who deliberately flog ourselves or try to make life needlessly hard. Absolutely not. And yet... And yet, if you fly the flag of King Jesus high, even today, let alone some point in the future, you will engender some level of antagonism or persecution. And yet, if the God who gave you everything also gives you the right and privilege to suffer for His sake, as verse 29 declares, is it not a good and honorable thing for you to accept that? That that is a good lot in life to have, to be known as one who suffers on behalf of your King. Paul knew this to be true. For to you, has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In closing this morning, I'll tell you this, certain sacrifices are worth making. Christendom in our day and age, in our culture, North American and evangelical Christianity will tell you it's about your health and your wealth and your prosperity, these things that God will add on top of your life, that your life is pretty good right now and Jesus will just make it better. That's the message of so much of Christendom. Well, the message of Paul and Scripture and Christ himself is that sometimes, sometimes there is a cost and a sacrifice that you will realize, that you will experience, that you will encounter if you, if you raise this flag of Christ. And these sacrifices are worth every ounce of it. Certain sacrifices are worth giving your all. Suffering for the sake of Jesus, that's at the top of the list. Again, culturally, we don't see that, and we don't have to experience it, thank God, as much right now. But if that should change, what will our response be? You know, there are odd cultural winds blowing even now. We don't know the outcome. We don't know the timing. But the trajectory doesn't look that great. And with that being said, whether we stand for God and His Word, or whether we hide our faith in our beliefs in order to make peace with His enemies, this is a decision point that may well be on the horizon. Paul knew it was on the horizon for the Philippians. For you and I, this might be a little academic. For the Philippians, it wasn't just on their horizon, it was in front of their noses. Should that ever happen to us, what would we do when that hour should come? Well, as a church, this verse is our response. With one mind, we must strive together for the faith of the gospel, not in any way terrified by our adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to us of salvation and that of God. Let's pray for the grace to have that sort of profession both now and the time yet to come. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.